Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thank you. Isn't this a great time of year? It is so welcome, given all of the circumstances that we've had to deal with for such a long period of time. Having the opportunity now to celebrate what is probably the most significant thing that we could possibly ever celebrate, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a magnificent thing. This story is actually told in two of the scriptures. Luke gives an account of the birth of Christ through the eyes and the perspective of Mary. And as Jim just read a moment ago in Matthew, we have the birth of Christ through the eyes and the perspective of Joseph. But before we get into the actual story, just give a little context because Matthew introduces his gospel in a very different way. He gives it to us from a genealogical perspective. Now, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know it until I was doing some prep for this sermon this morning. But two months ago in October, it was National Family History Month. I didn't know that. I guess we start to celebrate that now, too, because genealogy has become something that many Americans are consumed with today. I read an account that there's probably about 35 million people in our country today that have taken DNA tests to find out something about their family origin and then how their families developed over time. Well, genealogy may be important to us, but it was also something that was very important in our story today. And as we share this story, I want to do it with four points that I feel kind of build upon themselves through the passage that Jim just read. And these are the four if you want to follow along with me. First, we want to talk about the revealing of the coming of the Messiah. And then secondly, the potential rejection of the mother of the Messiah. Thirdly, the resolution of Joseph's dilemma brought forth by divine intervention. And then finally, the recognition of the Messiah who came to rescue us from our sins and reside with us forever. But first, let's take a look at how Matthew reveals this gospel account to us. This is the most Jewish of all the four Gospels. It is written by a Jewish tax collector to a Jewish audience about a Jewish person from the tribe of Judah who would be ultimately the anointed Jewish king that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Now because the audience was primarily Jewish, Matthew needed to prove the genealogy because all Jews knew that Christ would be a descendant from the line of Abraham and through David. And when genealogy is presented, it is always presented through the line of the males. Now as a point of interest, it's kind of remarkable that this genealogy takes a turn and mentions four women in the line of blessing that led to Christ. Four women. The first is Tamar, who was a foreigner, 
a prostitute, and a sinner. Her story is captured in Genesis in chapter 38. And then secondly, we would be introduced to Rahab. You may remember her story. It comes from the book of Joshua in the very beginning. There were two spies that were sent in to look out over the land by Joshua. And Rahab hid those spies prior to the invasion of Jericho by Joshua and his army. And then thirdly, we have the introduction of Ruth. Ruth from the book of Ruth. Ruth was also a foreigner and a Moabite. And she ultimately became accepted by the nation of Israel through her marriage to Boaz, who we know as the kindred redeemer. And then finally, we have mention of Bathsheba, who was married uh, to David ultimately, but she was an adulterous woman who brought shame to the line between God and his people through the adulterous relationship he had, she had with King David. Now, the introduction of these women in this genealogy is not by accident. Women were very important in the Bible. But in addition to that, it also shows God's grace to all through the birth of Christ because Christ even identifies with sinners. Why? Because he came to save them from his sin, from their sins. And that was his purpose. Now, we're not going to read the genealogy today. It's kind of painful if we do it. If you've ever tried to do it before, you know, there are 42 generations that are mentioned there, and there's a lot of names that are very difficult to read. By the way, as an aside comment on that, if you're ever having to read names that you're not familiar with in the Bible, one pastor once said to me, say it with authority, and then the people are going to think, oh, that's how you say that, okay? So, yeah. But uh, anyway, it's painful, but there is one verse towards the end of the genealogy that is very important. I want to call attention to it. It's in Matthew 1 and verse 16. And this is the end of the genealogical account, but it says this, Jacob begat Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Jacob begat Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. It is important that we understand that Joseph is not and was not Jesus' biological father. He was not. Now, when he would later marry Mary as his wife, he would claim Joseph or Jesus as his son, but it was not his biological son. Jesus was his adopted son. And I want to mention that because adoption is very important to us as Christians. Why? Because we are adopted into the family of God through Christ. The Bible tells us this in Ephesians 1 and verse 5. He, God, predestined us to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So we are adopted into God's family through Christ. Now we get to the, the gospel story that Jim read just a moment ago. And the really fascinating thing about this unusual story and these unusual circumstances is that it is true it actually happened in this way. And this was a one-time event for all time. And it would never happen again. 
Look at the first couple of verses uh, from, uh, that Jim read just a moment ago from Matthew 1 and verses 18 and 19. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So the story that we're looking at here begins by telling us the conditions that were surrounding the birth, the incarnate birth of Christ. Now, in terms of his actual place of birth, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. But this story does not take place there. This story takes place in Nazareth of Galilee. And this was a place where Jesus would ultimately return because that's where he spent the bulk of his time in ministry. But Matthew introduces us to two people, and we don't know very much about them, Mary and Joseph. They're young people. We don't know exactly how old. Matthew was probably in his very early 20s, and Mary a bit younger than that. But what we do know about them is that they were betrothed to one another. They were betrothed. That word is one that we don't really use an awful lot today. It's a little bit foreign to us. When we think of betrothal, we may see it quite similar to the word engagement that we have today, but it had a much deeper meaning to the Jewish people. It meant to promise by one's own truth, to promise. So men and women were preparing to be married during this time, And it normally began about a year before the actual marriage took place. And from the time that men and women were betrothed to be married, the wife or the betrothed woman was considered to be the wife of the man. It was a very serious thing to be betrothed and married. And betrothal is even used in a figurative sense to show the spiritual connection between God and his people. This is what the book of Hosea says about betrothal from God. And I, God, will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So as we get back to Joseph now, he's betrothed to Mary... And for him, this was a signed and witnessed legal contract between those two. And it was just as important as the the marriage ceremony itself. Any unfaithfulness during this period would have been a very, very serious thing. Levitical law even says this about adultery. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So it was a serious thing. You know, if we look and fast forward to the ministry of Christ when he was about 30, he encountered this very situation when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law brought before him an adulterous woman. This happened in John chapter 8. They wanted to know what he had to say about that. Now, the religious leaders 
and the teachers of the law were not trying to really understand what the right thing to do was from Jesus' perspective. They were really just trying to trap him. And so they brought this adulterous woman before him and they said, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The Mosaic law says that you should put her to death, or we should put her to death by stoning. What say you? And Jesus did not answer right away. We have evidence from Scripture that in his finger he was drawing on the ground. But they didn't stop. They kept pressing him on that point. This woman committed adultery. We're supposed to stone her. What do you say we should do? And he got up. And he said this. Let the one who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And you remember from the story what happened after that. One by one, they left. And they went away. And then Jesus turned to the woman. And he said, woman, who is left to condemn you. And she said, no one, sir. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, Jesus knew the precepts of the law, but he came for a different meaning. He wanted to restore her and to save her. And so he gave her that instruction, do not sin anymore. Now back to Joseph, he has now to decide what he should do knowing that he appears to be betrothed to an adulterous woman. And that leads us to our second point, the potential rejection of the mother of the Messiah. There's rising tension here in this circumstance. Joseph is now facing a very serious situation. It's a critical decision for him. And like most people in this circumstance, he has to look at the facts, as he knew them, what were they? Well, Mary is with child. She's pregnant. But this happened before Mary and Joseph came together. They had not yet consummated their marriage. This would not have happened until after the marriage ceremony. And he knew that this was not his child. We can probably conclude this was the biggest problem that he had ever faced in his life, perhaps a bigger problem than he would ever face at any time in his life. And as we consider that, we have to ask ourselves a question here. What do we do when we encounter, encounter significant problems in our own life? Do we try to resolve them on our own? Or do we ask for God to help us in prayer? At this point, we know that Joseph had not yet done that. He hadn't sought help from God. He must have been thinking an awful lot about what to do, though. We know that he probably thought that this was going to be a very rocky relationship at the very least. Mary was pregnant. It wasn't his. And as we look at verse 19, he struggled with the fact that he was believing at this moment that she was unfaithful. He knew the possibility existed for him to do something according to either Levitical law or the law in the book of Deuteronomy. He could have made her a public example. 
and that was within, within his right to do. And perhaps he needed to think about that a little bit further. You can only imagine that Joseph's plan for his future with Mary and the, and the hope and, and joy that they may have lived out together was at this moment in time washed away. His dream for a great life with Mary was shattered beyond hope of repair. And you can imagine he must have been completely brokenhearted over this terrible news. This was a point of crisis for him. He had to make a decision, but in his mind, there really were no good alternatives. For Joseph, perhaps there was only one real solution for him to make. He realized the best thing for him to do was to dissolve the contract made in betrothal, avoid going forward in marriage, and move on with his life. There's nothing else he probably could do in his mind. He would divorce her privately and endure the pain and suffering that surely would follow, perhaps pain and suffering that he would experience even for the rest of his life. Maybe we can understand Joseph's thought process here. If this was all the information that we had to work with in terms of understanding this problem, it might seem like a logical thing to do. And this is probably what would have happened if there were no divine intervention. He would have divorced her and moved on. But you know, I find something else very, very interesting in this story as I was preparing this message. One thing that maybe some of us would have done that he did not do was he never discussed this with Mary. Never. The Bible doesn't say that. From Matthew's account, there is no mention of any contact that he had with Mary as he was contemplating this decision. If he had discussed it with Mary, he would have learned from her that she already knew what was happening. The angel Gabriel advised her that she was about to be with child. And she was going to give birth to his son, and she was told the same thing, his name would be Jesus. Now, just like Joseph, Mary had lots of questions too, but her questions were quickly answered by the angelic messenger sent from God. This is what Mary said when she found out in Luke chapter 1 and verses 34 through 38. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Because I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was once called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary knew that she was a virgin. And she knew that it was impossible for her to be pregnant unless it was of God. And now here, at this moment in time, of all of the women of all time, Mary was the one who was chosen to be blessed. And how did she respond? She believed and trusted what the Lord had said 
to the angel Gabriel. And she responded in a magnificent way. It's captured in Luke's Gospel. It's known as the Magnificat. It is Mary's song of praise to the Lord. And that's what the word Magnificat means. My soul magnifies the Lord. But our story continues now in verse 20 because Joseph is about to get some advice. Here's what it says. But after he had considered this, he, Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is exhausted at this point, and he falls asleep. But as he was sleeping, an angel of the Lord appeared to him as it had for Mary and helped him understand some things that he had not yet considered. He was about to learn the holy mystery of God was going to touch his simple life as well as the life of Mary, his betrothed, in a way that would only be done once in all of human history, never to be repeated again. And what we see in this verse is the introduction of the Trinity all at the same time. God the Father sent an angel to Joseph in his dream just as he had done for Mary to tell Joseph that what was conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit. Divine intervention enabled this pregnancy to come about, and deity had not been nor would it be lost in the birth of Christ. He was always God. From all dispensations of time, he never was not God. The Gospel of John tells us that. He is referred to as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. By Him all things were made and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness. But the darkness has not understood it. Christ was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity. And Jesus knew that in the beginning as well. He once said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So by taking on flesh, our Lord, who was fully God, also became fully man. So if you're going to share that story this Christmas season, how would you do it? What would you say? How would you explain it? Well, I can tell you that you're not going to be able to explain it through science. It wouldn't happen. It must be received by faith. And Joseph was about to exercise that faith. Look what the angel said to him in his dream. He called him Joseph son of David, Joseph would have known that the line of blessing flowed from Abraham through David and ultimately to Christ. And Joseph is reminded that he is a royal descendant of King David. And because he was descendant of King David, 
and God's ultimate promise to establish an everlasting king over an everlasting kingdom had not yet been fulfilled, Joseph was about to learn an amazing truth. He was going to play a significant role in God's plan as the adoptive father of the king of the world. And he's told, don't be afraid. This promise is to uh, God is about to fulfill his promise. He is presenting himself in human life through a human birth with character and purpose that had never been seen before. G. Campbell Morgan, a great theologian, said this about this resolution that Joseph found. At last, the God-inspired hope of his people expressed through prophecy is declared to be realized in the birth of the child of Mary. Joseph heard this from an angel in his dream and believed in faith. Not only was the prophecy going to be fulfilled, but God is going to raise up a descendant through this line that would establish a throne and a kingdom that would last forever because our Lord Jesus Christ was born for a purpose. And this is the magnificent conclusion of this great story of the birth of Christ found in the last four verses, beginning in verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. I just want to mention here also that in that last verse, even though ultimately he was instructed to marry her, he had no union with her until she gave birth to her son. It can never be said that this birth was not incarnate and provided by the power of the Holy Spirit. So finally, in these verses, we have the recognition of the Messiah, whose purpose is to rescue us from sin and reside with us forever. And so now we have a new setting, a new set of circumstances that Joseph had never considered before. And the prophecy comes from Isaiah in chapter 7 and verse 14. But it's further amplified in Isaiah 9. And we sang this today in one of our hymns. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. All of this character and purpose focused on this one child who would be born to the Virgin Mary. Joseph heard this through an angel in his dream. He recognized it as truth and he accepted it in faith. Mary heard it through the angel Gabriel and she also believed in faith. 
And as it was for Mary and Joseph, it is for us today. It is a mystery that cannot be expressed or fully understood by any human explanation. It must be accepted and trusted in faith. But we learn something about this child who was to be born. He had a special name that had special meaning. And it's reinforced in the dream that Joseph had. Mary, your betrothed, will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. It was as common then as the name John is common to us today. And it means Jehovah is salvation. Now, although it was a common name to the Jewish people, certainly Christ would not have a common purpose. He was born to save his people from their sins. And all of that is very different than what the Jews expected from the anointed king. Think of the hardship that they endured throughout all of their history. The bondage in Egypt and the harsh treatment for hundreds of years. The fall of Jerusalem, the captivity from the Babylonians, and now the harsh treatment from Rome. They wanted a king who was going to save them from the burden and the power of Rome and establish an earthly kingdom. But the real problem was not the harsh treatment from Rome. Their real problem was the same as ours is today. They were sinners, and they needed a Savior. They needed Jesus, just like we do. And Scripture tells us that the one named Jesus would also have another special name. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in human form would come to save us, yes, but for those who know him personally, he will reside with us forever. And though we may be feeling at times rejected by some today, perhaps as Israel felt under the conditions that they faced by Rome, We today celebrate a Savior who loves us unconditionally despite all of our imperfections if we turn from sin and turn to Him who has the power to save us. As I was preparing this message, I have to uh, give credit to my wife, Janice, who gave me an illustration from the animal kingdom that I think explains this very well. Pastor did also during his children's sermon about redemption. Every once in a while, a ewe will give birth to a lamb, but she'll reject it. There are many reasons why she might do this. If the lamb is just, she might think the lamb is just flawed in some way and not good enough to keep. And even if the lamb is returned to the ewe, the mother may even kick the poor animal away. Once she rejects one of her lambs, she will not change her mind. And that little lamb feels the rejection instantly. And it's obvious 
They hang their heads so low that their neck looks like it's out of place and their spirit is completely broken. And these little lambs are referred to as bummer lambs. And unless the shepherd intervenes, the lamb will die rejected and alone, cast out from the flock without any opportunity to be accepted again. But there's good news. The shepherd does not allow that to happen. Do you know what he does? He takes the rejected little one into his home and he hand feeds it and he keeps it warm by the fire and he wraps it up in blankets and holds it to his chest so that little lamb can even feel his heartbeat. And once the lamb is strong enough, the shepherd will place it back in the field with the rest of the flock. And you know, the rejected lamb always remembers the shepherd. It remembers how the shepherd cared for him when even his own mother did not. And when the shepherd calls for the flock, guess who responds first? That lamb knows the shepherd's voice and it knows intimately the one who loved it unconditionally. As sinners, sometimes we may feel dejected and broken and depressed. But our Lord is the Good Shepherd. He told us that through His Word. He cares for every one of us. And He holds us close to His heart so that even we can feel His heartbeat through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like the bummer lamb, if we turn to Christ, He will never reject us because He is our Good Shepherd and He was born with a purpose. And His purpose was something that He understood very well as explained by the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians in chapter 2. Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Later this week, many in this world are going to celebrate the birth of Christ. And certainly, Christ is the central focus of this season. He is the central focus, certainly, of this gospel message. But He is also the central focus of everything that we find in Scripture. From the beginning, in the book of Genesis, and all the way through to the book of Revelation. It is all about Jesus. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon captured this idea with this illustration. He gave it once while he was teaching. He said, in every little town, every village, every little hamlet in England, wherever it might be, it has a road that leads to London. 
And so, from every text in Scripture, there is a road that leads directly to Christ. So as we read and study the Scriptures, our business then is to discover what that road is that leads to Christ. And he concluded by saying that if he ever found a text of Scripture that didn't have a road to Christ in it, he said, if I ever do find one that doesn't have that road to Christ in it, I'll make one. So I want to end this message today with a question for all of us. What road are we on today? Is it a road that always leads to Christ? And this Christmas season, as we celebrate his birth and recognize the greatest gift that we ever had, may we challenge ourselves to celebrate that birth with a life that honors him now and always for fulfilling the ultimate purpose that God gave to him, which was to save us from our sins and reside with us forever. Let's pray.